Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a weekly podcast that reviews one or two new release titles every episode with an occasional free-for-all segment at the end that we call Potpourri. You can find more of our work, including written reviews, full episode show notes, and the complete backlog of our episodes at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also write into the show by emailing me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And if you'd like to support us and get access to hundreds of exclusive episodes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where you can get instant access to content at any of our tier levels on a recurring monthly subscription basis, or you can buy individual collections a la carte in the Patreon shop section. Uh, This week on the Patreon, I'm continuing my Flanagan Fridays series uh, with the first episode this week coming out with the, um, no, wait, the next episode this week coming out with the first episode of my Haunting of Hill House, um, review series going episode by episode through the haunting of hill house uh, that hits on friday and then on saturday i'm going to have the next edition of my sci-fi saturdays installment um which is my review of foundation season two episode two is going to be coming out this saturday and, and then previous to that um on if you're listening to this day of release yesterday on the um Patreon, I released my uh, next installment of my Patreon Poopery episode series, uh, where I'm going through a bunch of stuff that I'm watching on Criterion Channel. Um, that went up on Wednesday. It's a full length episode, about an hour long, where I'm talking about four different movies I watched on Criterion Channel recently. Uh, this installment covers my my thoughts on the Richard Linklater movie Slacker. Uh, Police Story and Police Story 2 and Design for Living. Um, So that is up on Patreon for the $5 and $10 tiers. Um, That is what's going on on Patreon this week. Uh, Once again, you can sign up uh, at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer for all that and a whole bunch more content. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and you can find me on social media, which includes Letterboxd at obsessiveviewer. And in our featured review this week, I'll be reviewing Michael Mann's latest film Ferrari which opened in theaters on Christmas Day and is rumored to be coming to VOD later this month um, after what I have seen is apparently a disastrous uh, box office uh, uh, return for the movie. Um, and for this week's secondary review, uh, later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by Mike to cover Dan Levy's directorial debut, Good Grief, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Um, so yeah, so that is what I've got going on this week on the obsessive viewer. I don't have a lot of news to cover in terms of, uh, industry news or anything, especially since I'm meeting with Mike here in half an hour. So I have a little bit of a, constr- uh, uh, of a, of a tighter time frame for recording, but the one piece of news I wanted to bring up was that, um, Judd Apatow has ap- apparently spoken out against, uh, the, um, decision for Barbie to be put into the Oscar race for adapted screenplay. He said that, uh, it's insulting to writers because there's no existing material from which to adapt it, uh, that it was adapted. And to that, I, I saw like a tweet from Drew McQueenie that, uh, I'll put links to all this in the show notes. I don't have it right in front of me, but where he basically talked about how, no, Judd Apatow is probably wrong in that respect because, uh, so much of 
Barbie, the movie, is predicated on our cultural understanding of what Barbie is in our culture. And that's why it is building off of what is conventional wisdom of the relationship between Barbie and Ken and why Alan was funny is because of his role in the uh, the culture as as a Barbie uh, accessory, essentially. Um, so it was really interesting. I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't really have like a dog in that race or anything because I don't care about the Oscars. I don't care about awards uh, season or anything, which is funny because right now the Golden Globes are happening and I'm not really watching. I'm not watching it at all. I don't know anything uh, going on. But anyway, that was just one little piece of news uh, that Judd Apatow kind of came out, uh, in, uh, staunch opposition to the idea of Barbie being run, uh, being, being going for the adapted screenplay Oscar. Um, I don't know what that does for original screenplay in terms of, uh, Oscar, um, you know, thinking, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. There are people that are more interested in that, that cover that stuff. So, um, I don't really have a, uh, I don't really have an opinion on that one way or the other. Um, that's all the news that I really have, um, this week. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else. So I guess I can kind of just dive into the featured review. Um, this week on the show, um, I am going to be doing a solo review of Ferrari, um, which came out on Christmas day, uh, last year and is, uh, currently running in theaters. I watched it on a screener. I, here's the thing. Um, and this is going to kind of spoil a little bit of my review, not the movie itself, but I have a screener of this movie and it's still playing in theaters. Um, it is, it's no longer playing in the theater that's right next to where I live, but it is one, it is playing at one that's kind of a little ways away that I, uh, because of that, I was like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna watch it at home. So last night I put it in and I was watching it and I got about 15 minutes in and I was just like, I'm, I'm too tired. And this is going, this is a two hour and 10 minute movie. I can already tell that it's not, it's not gripping me and it's, I don't want to turn it into a four hour and 10 minute movie by, by being distracted. So my plan was I'm going to go to the movie theater tomorrow. That way I have to, I have to watch it distraction free. Um, and maybe I'll get, you know, I'll enjoy it more. Um, spoiler alert. I didn't end up going to the theater oddly enough because the theater was kind of packed when I looked at the seats and everything. Like there was not a lot of vacant seats in the, in that showing that I was going to go to the only showing I had time to go to today. Um, and that's weird because, you know, the movie didn't perform well at the box office or anything. Then again, it was a smaller theater, a smaller auditorium, uh, that it was in. So that's, that can account for that. But I ended up watching the screener at home and, I wasn't distracted by it. I stopped to get a drink, um, but I paused it and came back to it. So I ended up finishing it before I actually would have finished it in the theater um, had I gone to that showing. So that's a little behind the scenes. Let me go into my featured review of the evening. Um, Let's talk about Ferrari. Um, again, it's in theaters. I saw a rumor that it's going to be on VOD later this month. I don't, I couldn't really corroborate that. So that could be true or false. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know where, I don't know when the expected, um, 
announcement for that will be. But basically, uh, I will do a non-spoiler review and then go into a spoiler review. When I do the spoiler review, I'll play a clip from the trailer and then go into spoilers. Uh, the premise is set in the summer of 1957 with Enzo Ferrari's auto, auto empire in crisis. The ex-racer turned entrepreneur uh, pushes himself and his drivers to the edge as they launch into the uh, Mil Mil Miglia. I have already forgot how to pronounce that. And I was so proud of myself because it was I could pronounce it when I was watching at home. Anyway, a treacherous 1000 mile race across Italy. Uh, director for this movie was Michael Mann, making his uh, feature directorial return after 2015's Black Hat that I didn't see, but was widely, widely panned um, that I know a lot of people did not like that movie. <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. But, uh, the writers, uh, were, uh, writer for the movie was Troy Kennedy Martin based on the book by Brock Yates. Cast includes Adam Driver, Shailene Woodley, uh, Giuseppe Festinis and Penelope Cruz. Um, so in non-spoilers, I, here's, here are my non-spoiler thoughts on Ferrari. Um, I didn't like it. Um, I rendered, I ended up rating it two stars. Um, it's a shame because I know that Michael Mann has, has been trying to make this movie for 30 years from what I could see online. Um, he's been trying to make it for 30 years originally in the nineties. I think it was going to be, uh, it was going to star Robert De Niro. Um, uh, throughout the process, I think Christian Bale was going to be, was going to be Ferrari at one point. Uh, but it ended up being, uh, Adam Driver, which I will say up top, I feel like there is, there are people who do not care for Adam Driver's performance in this, or at least the Italian accent. I would say that his Italian accent is probably the, the, a bright spot of the movie for me. I didn't have a problem with it. Um, at all. Um, in fact, there were other actors in this movie whose, whose, uh, accents were just horrible. Um, but I thought Adam Driver did, did a, a really good job in terms of his performance in this movie, even though the material wasn't there for him. And that's what I'm going to kind of get into with this review is that he, that like as a figure, Enzo Ferrari in this movie, he is kind of split into a couple of different a couple of different fronts, basically. Um, it's kind of positioning him as having this double life. Um, it introduces right off the bat that he has this double life where he has like kind of a secret family. He's been having an affair with um, a woman played by Shailene Woodley. Um, and then they have a kid as well. And uh, the kind of a big dramatic part of the movie is that the kid is a secret and no one really knows about this kid that he has this illegitimate child that he has, although he and his wife are kind of in an open marriage and it's, it's, it's kind of messy in that regard as well. But the movie doesn't really do much with that, or it, it does focus on that pretty severely throughout the movie. But the problem is that it's contending with so many other things going on that it doesn't really have a cohesive, feel to it. And that's where it kind of dragged for me. Um, because we get like, we get the introduction of Enzo and Laura, his wife played by Penelope Cruz. Um, they are partners in the, in, in the auto company that they run, uh, that they've run for like 11 years, um, 10 or 11 years. And this is, this is like, they're the figureheads of that. Um, 
the movie begins with them dealing with like i think a maserati driver coming into in into town to basically break some kind of record that enzo had or ferrari had um on the track on a track so that's kind of the launching off point of the movie and the the all of the racing mechanics and racing uh milestones throughout the movie aren't that like necessarily that prevalent in the movie and it's because we're also dealing with this familial dispute this uh this issue that comes up with um with with like Laura finding out about the secret family and them kind of dealing with the personal drama that that entails which those that combined with the racing aspect of the movie and the whole Ferrari enterprise being in very, very, very dire straits, monetarily speaking, those individually are interesting concepts. But when you mash them all together and it kind of mash them all together in a way that makes it so that nothing really comes out, uh, comes through, um, to the forefront that makes the movie feel very, very slow paced, very, uh, dull and, and very much unfocused. That's kind of my main issue with the movie overall is that it really, really feels unfocused. And it feels like by the end of the movie, we're supposed to have, um, like a pretty clear picture of who Enzo Ferrari was, who he is as a subject in this world, in this movie. Um, and the movie tries to paint that picture by having him be a kind of grueling authoritarian figure within like his, his empire, um, who has his back against the wall and is forcing his drivers and forcing his company to to do the very very dangerous thing of doing this thousand mile race across Italy specifically so the company can 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 manufacture and sell 400 sports cars and stay afloat like that's compelling story and that's compelling drama um but then you also have like Shailene Woodley's character, who's who's the character's name I have forgotten, and I feel terrible about that. Um, but she is gearing up for uh, their son's uh, confirmation, um, and because of that, uh, her name is Lena. Um, because of that, uh, she is kind of putting pressure on Enzo to like figure out, like, okay, is his name going to be? Uh, is is our son's name going to be Piero Lardi or Piero Lardi Ferrari? And that, like, I really wish that there was more to, um, to that 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 identity crisis that Enzo has with his other family and the way that that weighs on him. Because there are moments, like, any time the child Piero is on screen it is very clear like he is he is invested in the ferrari brand he's invested in racing he's he's a little kid but he tells enzo like i want to be i want to be a race car driver when i grow up and like there are elements of that that are great in terms of fostering this crisis of 
personal turmoil that Enzo is experiencing with with his uh, professional life and his private life. The way that those those kind of eat at him are pretty interesting, but it's very, very undercooked because it's in contention with so many different things. But that is really interesting, and I wish that it would have been uh, harped on a little bit more because the downside is that, like, like it, it because there are so many different things going on in the movie because of that we have this vacuum of detail or this vacuum uh not vacuum but this very short span of time that is supposed to be about uh to cover like the the identity crisis of Piero and and who he is as a Ferrari or as a Lardi basically uh, Shailene Woodley's character's last name um and so because of that because that's so confined there's like there's a scene that feels just so heavy-handed and like such a narrative shortcut where Ferrari is leaving the house where where uh Linda or Lena Lena and Piero live and Piero is in the window and he's just like he's he's like pounding his fists on the on the on the pain saying Ferrari 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 and it's like that it just comes across as so like it it just comes across as just a quick shortcut to communicate to us that like oh yeah Enzo has to make a choice and he needs to figure out if he's going to claim this child as his own and give him like make him his heir basically um and it's just it's such a it's such a cheap tactic in terms of the story or in the screenplay and it just it didn't play well for me um other other parts in this movie I, like again the the urgency the sense of urgency and importance that is placed on the different drivers and the the race itself of of the 1000 a uh, thousand mile race across uh, Italy, the, uh, the middle Miglia, um, that whole aspect is so undercooked and it just doesn't feel like it should have, like, it doesn't feel like it has the import- importance that it should have. And by the end of it, you realize it really should have had a lot of importance. It comes very late in the movie with about 40 minutes left. We get like the actual race and in terms of filming it, it looks good. It looks interesting, especially with the backdrop of like Italian countryside and um, and just this beautiful like landscape and everything. Um, that's great. Like it looks great, but it's just kind of a very um, kind of too little too late um, because we don't really get... Um, at least I didn't really get the sense of urgency with it. And, and that's kind of a problem with the entire movie is again, it just kind of plays up, uh, these too many different things about Ferrari's life. And the result is that these, these elements of his life don't really compute or don't really coalesce into, um, a satisfactory, um, all-encompassing picture of Enzo Ferrari as a subject. So I rated it two stars. I didn't like the movie and I'm going to go into a brief spoiler discussion or spoiler review, uh, here, here in a second, because there are a couple of sticking points in the, um, in the film that I wanted to kind of talk out here. So, um, I'm going to go into spoilers for Ferrari. Once again, it is currently in theaters, uh, finishing out its theatrical run and it should be on VOD soon. Um, but I honestly can't really rec- recommend it. It's not, it's not 
it's it's not really that good. It you might enjoy it, but it's it just felt very very undercooked for me. So um, then yeah. So having said that, I'm going to go into spoilers for Ferrari. I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. Um, if you want to sidestep sidestep the spoilers, check the show notes for timestamps. Those show notes are going to be at obsessiveviewer.com/ov410. Um, so check that out if you want to navigate the timestamps, but if not, uh, check out this clip from the trailer for Ferrari. And when I come back, I'm going to spoil the movie. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space at the same moment in time. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. sportsman or a competitor if you get into one of my cars you get in the wind all right so spoilers on for ferrari um a few things here because i have i don't have quite as much time here as i would like but um yeah, it, it it the movie didn't really work for me for a multitude of reasons, but one main one is that it introduces um uh one of the first scenes of the movie is Enzo visiting his son's grave and we see on the uh on the uh the epitaph I think uh we see that he died a year before the movie set. So he was I think I think he was like 23 or maybe 13, I don't know. Um but he died a year prior to when this movie takes place and we see this moment of vulnerability where Enzo is is talking to his son's grave and he's talking about how he's haunted by ghosts, that of his brother, his father, and then he references two friends who died while racing. Um, and then he, he says that he has dreams of them and he sees them and it's haunting him. But then he says that he sees him, his son too. And he, his, uh, he tells his son's grave that his face is one that he wants to see. And this is like the most vulnerable we ever see Enzo in the movie. And it's beautiful. It's a hauntingly beautiful scene, a beautiful sentiment, but it kind of doesn't really track or doesn't really, uh, come into play, uh, much in the movie. Like it's, it kind of feels like it's not that connected to his story or the story that we're being told of Enzo Ferrari. It doesn't really help that. Um, and then at the end of the movie, we get this big blow up scene between him and Laura, um, where she blames him for their son's death. And that I think could have been a beautiful scene that could have been a very affecting scene, but because we don't have really any context for their, their son's death, aside from them being kind of apart in, in, in an open marriage and seeing them at the grave at separate times, that scene is kind of built around having a little bit too much of exposition to catch us up. So like as Penelope Cruz is giving this giving this big performance this big emotional performance she's also saddled with having to having to tell the audience like yeah our son was sick and you tried to you you couldn't save our son and you're the reason he's dead and then we have adam driver giving his his side of the performance being like having to 
literally tell the audience that like I thought that I could save him like I should I should have been able to save him I know everything about cars and I learned everything about medicine so that I could save him and I failed or something like that and like it just felt so uh again like a shortcut it felt like they didn't want to build up the emotional impact of a child's death and instead they seeded it early and then brought us ba- brought us up to speed as we're having the emotional um climax of that story of that part of the story play out in front of us and it just didn't really work for me it really really didn't work for me um a couple other things that that uh i was not too keen on in the movie was uh mainly the the race at the end um the big finish in terms of the the horrific crash that happens that kills um uh i think is it alfonso de portago um one of the drivers Again, there are moments that are seated so heavy handedly that it just feels like it feels very just uh, lazy in terms of the story. So the first instance of that is the beginning of the movie when the Maserati team, I think, is trying to um, to break Enzo's record on the track and they're monitoring it while they're in church. I thought that was really clever and interesting because they all had the stopwatches as the firing pistol was going off uh, so that they could clock it. But immediately after that, Enzo's like, okay, we're going to try to break the record again right now. And they get the driver and then Here's the thing, that scene where the driver is going across the track, it it is so kind of heavy handed that it's going to end in tragedy, that it's going to end in the driver's death because he shows up, he has his fiance there. And then as he's driving the track, we get the new driver come up. uh, I think it's a deportaggio uh, come up and he's like, Hey, yeah, I saw you at the, I saw you on the street and I wanted to introduce myself. And then Enzo's like, Oh, I don't need a new driver. And then moments later, the driver that he has is dead. And like, it just feels very, very just lazy in terms of the story and, in trying to just bring us into the next stage of the story. And that similarly happens at the end of the movie with, I think it's Deportage's, uh, death where, uh, he is like, they're at various stages of the race and he stops and like, he tells like the, the, uh, I think the actress girlfriend of his, he's like, yeah, meet me here. I'm going to win. I'm going to win the race. And, uh, and, and, you know, meet me there. And then it's like, yeah, well, he's not going to win the race. Something horrible is going to happen because they are very much, uh, they're very much, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's very heavy handed. It's not well concealed at all. And I can understand the symmetry of it, I guess, like the calling back to it, but, uh, to the beginning, but it just felt very, very undercooked and lazy. Um, so that didn't work for me. The actual visualization of the crash is horrifying, is absolutely horrifying. There is a, there's a thing where online, uh, there was a clip of someone asking Adam Driver what he thought of how fake or how goofy 
um, the, uh, the, the, the crashes looked in the movie. Uh, it said an audience member at a film festival screening in Poland asked Adam driver what he thought of the crash scenes. The audience member said they looked pretty harsh, drastic, and I must say cheesy for me, which in my opinion, I think that's an incredibly rude thing to say. <laughs> like if that's your opinion, that's your opinion, but it's also at a film festival where they're celebrating the movie. It's a whole thing. But anyway, driver replied, uh, Adam driver replied and said, fuck you. I don't know. Next question. <laughs> I thought I was like, yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, but in terms of the visualization of the crashes, like, I mean, there's like two crashes in the movie. Um, the big one is a little bit clunky and awkward, but it didn't really drive away or didn't really drive me away from the movie. Cause I already wasn't that invested in it or anything. Uh, so that was a little bit of, uh, that I didn't really care at that point. Um, what I wasn't anticipating was that it, we would see it just clear out that crowd. Um, it was very, very unexpected to actually see the car just like, like knock down the people in the crowd. I thought that, that was just kind of devastating and, and horrifying. And it's just, it's a shame because the movie didn't really build up to that moment for me in a way that would have made that more, um, more dramatic or would have made it land more with me because throughout the movie, up until that point, we've been dealing with so many different facets of Enzo's character, um, that, uh, that the entire, like the race itself and the implications of what it means for who Enzo is in terms of, uh, like his drive to, to be on top and to win and to, to be successful and everything because of all that, like it, it didn't really resonate with me as a, as a defining moment of the movie. And that's a shame because it really happened. So, um, I don't know, but anyway, um, that's a kind of brief featured review, but I don't really think I have much else to say about Ferrari. Um, I wasn't really that big a fan of it. I didn't like it. I rated it two stars. Um, yeah, it just, it didn't, it didn't work for me all that well. So, um, let me know what you thought. Uh, that is, yeah, let me know what you thought of Ferrari. Um, it's a brief review and I'm sorry for that, but it's, it's, I don't really have much else to say about it. Oh, um, by the end of the movie, when we, when we see the like title card that, or it's after, um, uh, Penelope Cruz, uh, Laura before, like after she said, like, you, you never give your son, uh, your name until I'm dead or whatever. And then the title card at the end is just like, she died in 1970 something. And then Piero Ferrari is now the, um, like executive or whatever in charge of Ferrari and everything. I'm like, okay, that seems weird. I don't know. It just, it didn't really, maybe it's a biopic problem because I don't really like biopics in general. Um, but it just feels like the movie was grasping at, straws for what they could do in terms of telling the story of Enzo Ferrari the way that like Michael Mann wanted to tell it and it just didn't it didn't really feel like a cohesive story at the end of the day so um that's a bit of a shame um but maybe whatever he does next Michael Mann whatever he does next which I think is actually heat too um uh hopefully it's good so <laughs> I don't know but I didn't really like this one uh, yeah, that's my, that, that's my review of Ferrari. Let me know what you thought. Again, you can find me on social media at obsessive viewer and also, um, uh, email, uh, email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Um, that is our featured review for a week coming up. You will hear me review, 
good grief with Mike. So stay tuned uh, for that in just a moment. They tell me I view obsessively. Okay, and joining me for our secondary review of the week here on the Obsessive Viewer Podcast, it is Mike White, who can be found, of course, on uh, the internets, on Twitter and all that, at uh, I Am Mike White. And his band, as good as it gets, uh, provides the theme song for this podcast. Uh, Mike! Welcome back to the show in, in an Thanks, un- man. yeah, an unprecedented era for the podcast where we are recording a, tw- a a new year episode before the year in review episode. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. I also feel like yeah. this is my first um not that they're not all special, but like this is my <laughs> first non uh pillar episode of the podcast in a long time. It, it so is. I'm, it's kind of fun to do just a uh, a movie of the week. With Absolutely, you. It's been a while. yeah. It ha- it has been such a long time because uh, last year you were on the year in review episode and then uh, couldn't couldn't Scream get you on. Six? No, you we weren't on for Scream Six. six. No, oh my I did gosh. that with my we'll friend have to Sam. Do commentary for that. We soon. we do. We still we still owe Patreon commentaries for Scream Five and Scream Six. Oh, we owe five. We do. Still. We do. Oh, yep. we're, we got to do five. We got to. Okay. We got to. We'll awesome. figure it out. Um, yep. But yeah, and then Scream 6. And then obviously there's never going to be a Scream 7. So um, <laughs> yeah. No, at this point there better not be. I know. I know. I've talked to death about it. Like yeah. I've talked it to death on the podcast. But man, it's just been, it's been a whole thing. I just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and listeners who are curious, whatever Matt has told you about Scream Seven, uh, it, pretty much I agree with. We've yeah. had these conversations on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've we both kind of agree. Yeah. What we want, the only thing that would be salvageable is just not going to happen. So at yeah. this point, yeah, give it a couple years and reboot it. Yep. The only it's the over. Yep. The only way, the only way I can see being excited about Scream Seven is if it's a few years down the road from now and someone else is making it some other mm-hmm. studio. Cause I think that they have just burned it. Um, in <laughs> like, as an aside, I will say this, um, this would be a fun time for uh shout factory scream factory to, uh, put together a big box set of the six scream movies. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. If they could, if they could do it, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Mike, for our secondary review, we're going to be talking about Good Grief, uh, which is currently on Netflix. But before we do that, um, can you tell people where they can find you online and what is what what do you get what do you have had going on with as good as it gets and any any you know um, furry companions. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Which we can we can go more in depth about that next week on the year in review episode. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the cat podcast. We yes, did, we got we have cats. We adopted <laughs> uh, two kittens, uh, Zelda and Violet, uh, and we're very happy about them, and they're adorable, and I love them, and I never thought that I would like cats, but I do. Uh, you can find me it. on uh, the app formerly known as Twitter at I am Mike White. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not really on there all that often. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get on there to glance, but I'm not super active. Uh, and on Instagram, I am as dot good dot as dot it dot gets. Anyway, that's my <laughs> band as good as it gets. And we did the <laughs> theme song for this. And uh, we put out some music last year at the end of last year in October. Uh, and we're kind of sitting on that kind of um, 
kind of just taking a little break from music. Not anything serious, not anything long-term, but we're kind of uh, taking a break from being uh, uh, present, being on the internet for a little mm-hmm. while. We're talking all the time, working on songs. We'll definitely have some stuff out, but um, just, you know, feeling at the end of the year a little burnt out on the internet uh, and just trying to take some time. So, yeah. Here I am talking to you on the internet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, funny enough, I, I'm actually really excited about this. Uh, oh, me too. Me being on here was actually my idea. Yes. I uh, just wanted to get on and and, and chat a, a, a while. Hopefully, I don't want to say anything officially, but hopefully right. more semi-regularly than I have been. Absolutely. And that is something that it was kind of a serendipitous moment because I, this is like, I don't, I don't want to get into specifics, but like I've been going weekly with the podcast and like Mm -hmm. you had mentioned like, yeah, we should do like, you know, every other Sunday we should talk or however frequently, I don't want to broadcast how frequently. Yeah. Yeah. We can like talk and everything and maybe podcast something. And then I'm just like, oh, this, this could be very fortuitous. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So yeah, so this is the first of hopefully numerous times we'll be able to chat uh, throughout the Definitely. year. But, um, but yeah, but I totally get your uh, sentiment of getting away from the internet because uh, being burnt out on it and everything, just a really quick thing is that like, at least we have this year is going to be a very quiet year on social media. 2024. Yeah, nothing <laughs> particular going on in November. Nope. Of nope. Yeah. Be yeah such a chill year this it's year. yeah like i'm i'm purposely making a choice at the one of my new year's resolutions is i'm not going to engage in any any stuff like that this year oh, i just yeah. i can't engage. i can't i know what i Bad. yeah it's just it's it's yeah but what we can engage with is movies um <laughs> We can. In particular, yeah. we're talking about Dan Levy's directorial debut. Yes. Good Grief, which hit Netflix on January 5th, so this past Friday. Uh, uh-huh. The premise, according to IMDb, is when his husband unexpectedly dies, Mark's world shatters, sending him and his two best friends on a soul-searching trip to Paris that reveals some hard truths they each needed to face. Uh, written and directed by Dan Levy, it stars Dan Levy, Ruth Negga, uh, hey, uh, Hamish Patel and Luke Evans. Now, Mike, I think we hopefully, if we have time, we can do a non-spoiler and spoiler review. If you're good with that, sure. Um, yeah. so we'll do a non-spoiler review. But first, I wanted to get your thoughts on Dan Levy, um, because I feel like you are a Shit's Creek fan. Is that correct? Yeah, okay, absolutely. I have still yeah, not it's... seen it. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. It's funny that you say that because I was going to say before we even talk about the movie, I think you have to start with Dan Levy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We're kind of pronouncing his last name differently. differently. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if I'm probably saying it wrong. <laughs> I don't know that I'm saying it correctly mm-hmm. either. Dan Levy, yeah. Dan Levy, Eugene's child uh, so mm. I, I apologize yeah. to the levy or levy family but, i was um, more focused on making sure that i didn't mispronounce ruth's last name <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so to begin like i said I, I do think this conversation begins with him uh and i think he's a treasure i i love dan levy i really did like schitt's creek quite mm. a bit uh my wife and i binge watched it Oh, I guess back during quarantine, uh, and we loved every minute of it. And he's really the standout in in a pretty stacked cast. Um, 
so I was intrigued to hear what he had to say uh, in in kind of a directorial debut. He also wrote the movie, produced the mm. movie. So it's definitely his project. And um, maybe I should have studied a little more. I don't know exactly how it came to be, but it seems as if, you know, the Schitt's Creek and Netflix relationship has been uh, – fortunate and and financially beneficial for both parties right so i imagine netflix approached him uh and it makes me wonder if this was a project he like a passion project he always wanted to do uh or this came from scratch or what i'm not sure but i i knew one thing was for sure that i would kind of follow him wherever he goes he was in oh what was the name of the movie happiest season last year yeah uh, the Christmas movie that I thought was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love, I love Dan Levy. I, his, his presence on screen. I love, I love the way he carries himself. Um, his performances are, mm, I almost said understated. He's understated in this movie, but he's mm-hmm. not understated in Shit's Creek. But um, yeah, from all the clips I've seen of Shit's Creek, he seems like he's kind of playing, playing a big, playing it big in, in Shit's Creek. He is playing it big and the whole show is big but he mm-hmm. is often the straight man to his sister's like craziness and shenanigans. Okay. Um. So he's great Uh. and I, I also think he's pretty great in this mm-hmm. Um. and I love him. I think I would kind of watch anything that he that he would do. So, yeah. so what about you as someone who hasn't watched Shit's Creek? What, what drew you to this? Was it Dan Levy? Was it the Netflix partnership? Was it the trailer? What do you think? Um, <laughs> uh, full disclosure. It was the excitement that, Oh, Netflix was releasing something new in January. And with me having this whole idea of doing weekly obsessive viewer podcasts where like the main review is going to be a theatrical movie and the, and the secondary review is going to be usually a streaming one. I was like, yeah, okay, good grief. There we go. If it could be good, bad, whatever. And then I noticed like, oh, it's Dan Levy. And then I was like, Mike likes shit, shit's Creek. Um, <laughs> and like, uh, the kind of, it all, all kind of, uh, formed from there. But, um, Shit's Creek is a show that I need to watch because yeah, you do. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, it, it, correct me if I'm getting any of these wrong, but like Eugene Levy, uh, Catherine O'Hara, Dan uh-huh. Levy, and uh-huh. Annie Murphy, um, all people who I have seen in things and loved them in things. Yeah. And like, I'm sure that there are other people in the show, but like, I just, I feel like it's going to, it would be a very good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, but yeah, but that, that's what attracted me to seeing this, uh, and knowing it was going to be on Netflix. I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. So, uh, one thing that really impressed me about Dan Levy uh, as an actor in this movie is, like you said, he is he he isn't. I guess he is pretty understated, but it is it is very it is very much in touch with that internalized grief that the character is is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And this might be a completely superficial, uh, completely dumb comparison but like there was a moment like probably halfway through the movie where like in terms of his overall style and like the costuming and like the his wardrobe and like the winter thing like he looks like 
he he looks like damn good like he's like dressed yeah. very very nicely yeah. um and like like i put in my notes uh there's something to his presence the combination of the way he looks like the sweater and everything the the facial hair and uh-huh. the way that he is communicating his uh-huh. feelings and his grief that i i wrote he's like the embodiment of what ted mosby from how i met your mother saw himself as but could never be <laughs> That's so good. Oh my gosh, that's spot on. <laughs> it just I just had that feeling. I was like, yeah, okay, this this is like Ted Mosby's like dream oh persona. Gosh. That's I can't believe how spot on that is. That's perfect. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there is something gravitational, I mm. think, about Dan Levy and and his gait, the way he carries himself. Mm. He um, you know, his his mannerisms with his hands and his voice yes. are very elegant and and soft and understated but but he's also like over 6 feet tall so he's a mm, large yeah. person with a presence who uh, is unbelievably stylish um and yeah i i feel the same thing that you feel so to, if if we start reviewing the movie mm. uh, i'll just say he's the best part of the movie oh hands Uh, down yeah and that's a good thing for him Mm -hmm. i do think we'll have some critiques about everybody else um yeah but he does uh, he is he has a gravity uh and he was that way in schitt's creek Uh, i mean he was the funniest uh and then when some of his storylines in schitt's creek became a little more um dramatic those were also um uh i don't i keep saying gravitational i don't i don't know you it was just the best part magnetic yeah uh and that that translated into the in a a feature film uh version of the dan levy experience as well he's he's so interesting to watch Mm -hmm. yeah and and there is also like for for the faults of the movie that we'll get into um in terms of the supporting characters i would say um, for all the, for like the, the issues that, that arise from that, um, the script as it deals with Mark as a character and his grief is very smartly, uh, written the way that it doesn't make, it doesn't center the emotional, like, uh, outbursts or anything that he could have. It doesn't, it doesn't center it around like, um, a dramatic moment. So like the scene in the shop where he is trying to exchange something, um, he has like an emotional, like not breakdown, but he has an emotional moment where he like lays it all out. And he's like, this is why I'm doing this. This is what, what's happened. But like, that's not like a big, like that's not a big centerpiece emotional moment because it's living in that grief. And, and there are scenes where he's just expounding on like what, he's feeling in terms of his grief for his husband that I'm just like, that is just such a beautiful and haunting like expression of what it is to lose someone. Uh And it's, I just thought that that was very, very strong uh, writing and performing from Dan Levy. The performing, certainly the writing anytime Mark Dan Levy's Mm -hmm. character uh, speaks is also very well done and yeah. i also get the sense from the movie um it's a it's very monologue and yeah. it's it's almost um it's like a sequence of monologues and again i wonder you know first feature film how how much of this did he have in a notebook somewhere where he's uh-huh. like when i make a movie i'm gonna write 
this monologue because his anytime Mark Dan Levy's character is speaking and giving a monologue, it's pitch perfect mm-hmm. and evocative and powerful and and well done. Again, I, I think we're hinting, and I think you agree with me how we feel yeah. about the other characters. I don't know that that fully translates through the through the rest of the movie, but yeah. I will give you that if the center of the movie is Mark and his grief, it's excellent. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, half of the movie is the friend's character. Yeah, and and they just kind of really just fall by the wayside at, at a certain point. And I I really and we'll talk about this in spoilers, but like there's a level where there's a point in the movie where it tries to tie it all together. Like the plot summary says, it's like they reveal some hard truths that they need to face. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those kind of come up out of, not necessarily out of nowhere, but it just feels like it's trying to wrap something up in a bow that isn't properly packaged (laughs) to begin with. Yeah. Um, It just, it feels very, very, uh, uh tenuous in terms of trying to wrap things up but we can talk more about that well yeah we'll save that for the spoiler section but if we're talking about are we talking about kind of the one um it's uh, it's the climax of the movie essentially mm-hmm. uh on a particular set piece and they all kind of take turns having a conversation yeah, yeah that felt very monologue yeah uh, and, and i mean that in kind of a negative way mm-hmm. where like each character had a monologue assigned to them and it's not even so much that they were reacting or or having a conversation with each other they just kind of all said things at each other yes yes that is exactly how it felt and the the way that i mean obviously the movie is positioned specifically on mark as a character um in mm-hmm. like it feels like those monologues were built around the idea that these that these other two characters would have like as strong of um as strong of a character arc as Mark does but they don't like the resolution yeah. of of the two characters they're different things it feels like you're they're plucked out of a completely different movie at some yeah. point um and that was yeah, that was I don't downer. I don't think the movie would be any less um convincing i don't think mark's no. story would be any less essential if the friends characters had less to do yeah oh yeah um it just felt a little bit not necessarily overstuffed but it just felt like it, it just it just felt like they needed something uh to not compete with but to to complement uh the grief stuff and it just it felt like it kind of didn't necessarily come out of nowhere, but wasn't just wasn't seated properly. Yeah. I think that comes from, or, or the rub that we're feeling comes from, uh, they're all characters in their late thirties, right? Mm -hmm. I think Mark specifically mentions being 35. I think he said 38. Did he say 38? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they're in their late thirties, almost 40. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mark's story is a, is a story of grief. Uh, over a, a, a relationship that that an adult would have in their 30s, right? Yeah. His husband of presumably some years mm-hmm. dies at the beginning of the movie, uh, and he's going through grief. The other two characters are in a coming-of-age movie. Yeah. And, uh, that's <clears throat> odd to me. Yeah, and, and with... Um, 
like uh, in terms of uh like sophie's character arc she is yeah kind of at an opposite end of of mark in terms of like the her relationship in the movie in that she it's not necessarily a state of arrested development but it's it's like a thing where she can't get to the next level with with the guy she's with which is a it like you yeah. said it's a good coming of age arc and everything but it just doesn't really it it doesn't really mix well with the grief stuff and i think that like i said before it just kind of feels like her and uh the other character uh thomas uh yeah. like they kind of fall by the wayside yeah i think they kind of fall by the wayside so sophie ruth nega's character um I this was in my notes. I just don't like hot mess characters. Oh, and yeah. I don't I don't know if that's a taste thing or we're supposed to kind of dislike hot mess characters. I wonder if there are people who I don't know, see a bit of themselves in hot mess characters like, yeah. "Oh honey, I I I feel you because I'm a hot mess too." <laughs> uh, but I just I've never <clears throat> any hot mess character in a movie um takes me out of it a little bit i've always i've always had trouble connecting with hot mess characters and i know i keep saying hot mess hot mess hot mess over and over again and and that's a trope and Mm. and it's a bit of a cliche and then later on in the movie she calls herself a hot mess (laughs) yeah and and it was almost the moment where (laughs) you know like when a movie confirms the thing you're being critical about Mm -hmm. you know what i mean do you ever watch a movie and you're like oh the movie's kind of doing this and then it like says that thing out loud oh yeah okay yeah i just don't like that oh yeah i've seen a Zack snyder movie um Um, but yeah no i totally agree and that's so interesting you say that and i don't want this to detract from the review at all or anything but um like i just recently within the last couple of days saw for the first time francis ha uh, the Noah Baumbach movie, and like that's a hot mess character coming of age story, and like it's done so incredibly well because the character is so endearing and so interesting at that that it's like like seeing any other movie that has that archetype is going to be a just downgraded for me because it exposes the archetype. It's kind of like the oh, yeah. walk hard, the Dewey Cox story effect on music biopics. Like I, uh-huh. like I've seen the best in Francis Ha and like seeing now Sophie in good grief. It's like, okay, we get it. Like yeah. do something a little bit more interesting. And like the resolution of her story is, is upbeat and uplifting and interesting, I guess. Sure. But yeah, but it just, the road there isn't, isn't that well done same with uh same with thomas's story as well it just they both well secondary himesh patel i'm not even quite sure what his story is yeah his entire arc that he's lamenting being second or third fiddle to everybody i guess and and we will i'll have to we'll have to talk about that in spoilers because there was a moment where like like his monologue yeah. I thought this it was, was the one we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end. Yeah. It just it yeah, it did not it did not compute with me as in terms of being like the 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 conclusion of of, of the story that we had been seeing him go through in the movie. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh, notes on Luke Evans, Oliver, mm-hmm. uh who plays uh Dan Levy's husband in the movie who dies uh early on that is not a spoiler that is a right that's the plot yep. um 
his performance, that character, what'd you think there? He was okay. He was good. Um, I liked that there was, there was like one flashback, I think. Oh, I was just going to talk about Early this. on. Yeah. And, yes. and like, I was trying to, under, like, I thought it was beautifully done. Like, yes. I thought that the, in terms of, oh. like, filmmaking, beautiful. Me I, too. I yeah. thought, I was like, oh, we're in for, we're in for a great right. one. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't really understand, and I'm a little bit foggy on it uh, now, but like, was that a flashback to before or was that him imagining what the next day would have been like if he hadn't died? Or was it... Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, because he's referencing that, that was the, that morning. Okay. Okay. I think it was that morning. Yeah. Okay. Um, or, or, or yesterday or whatever. Gotcha. Right? Uh, okay. But there's a really cool... Um, yeah, the flashback is done where there's like transitions mm -hmm. where he's looking at a certain area in the flashback to pick up something. And then in the mo in the modern time, the next day, actual time, he picks that thing up. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was a really cool transition. There were a yeah. really couple interesting um, and worthwhile uh, edits or mm -hmm. camera angles. I thought it was interesting later on. There are two characters in a museum looking at a, uh, were they Monet? Was it a Monet exhibit? Uh, sure. I think so. <laughs> uh, and uh, for a second that, so they kiss and then mm. it, the camera goes behind them to show a wide shot. Like they're perfectly centered and then it goes behind but wider to see mm -hmm. the whole painting. Uh, I don't know. I haven't really done the work on what that means, but I just thought that that was a really cool, strange to kind of flip the camera angle in the middle of a mm -hmm. kiss, but um, I liked it. It was engaging. Yeah, it was not boring at all. Like it was no. very, it, there's some purpose behind it, but I couldn't detect it, but like it, it was very, a very good flourish to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, One small complaint, sorry, mm -hmm. okay. uh, is this could have easily been a Christmas movie if you released it two yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, So and weird to put it out in January. It is, it is weird, and, like, I don't, like, it is, it's one of those murky ones where I think it technically had maybe a run in, in, like, very limited run in theaters at the end of 2023. Oh, yeah. I'm counting okay. it as 2024. I don't care. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, it's a 2024 movie. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but I don't know. Do you want to go into spoilers for, for Spoil Good Spoil it Grief? up. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to play a clip from the trailer for Good Grief. Uh, if you want to avoid that, check the show notes for timestamps, all of that. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be spoiling Good Grief. So here is a clip from the trailer. Once again, it is streaming on Netflix. I've been reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard. Because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person. When they go away, your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person. Like muscle memory. I think we'll hold off on the wheel for today. Do I look older to you? I feel like I've aged a lot. No. Yes! Your husband just died. You're allowed. My God. Couldn't really love you anymore. So, spoilers on for Good Grief. And, and Mike, one thing I wanted to kind of touch on real quick up top is that... Um, it's something we didn't talk about in non-spoilers, but <laughs> there was... Uh, 
there was such an interesting, like, I guess comedic beat, um, but kind of not even surreal, but uh, the funeral scene the with the actress giving the eulogy. Yeah. I thought that was handled so well in Me terms too. of... Me yeah, too. It was, yes. it was hilarious. It was, it was touching to see like like dan levy his reactions to it just this numb grief and her saying like yeah he influenced everyone's lives especially mine (laughs) like yeah 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 i thought that was very very good um but yeah Yeah, any any time any time the death and mark's grief is is uh center stage i thought it was great i thought there were great moments Really, the whole first half of the movie, the inciting incident, I thought that. I thought uh, Oliver's father's speech Mm -hmm. was amazing. I mean, I had lip quivers listening to that speech. Uh, I thought that was great. And, and, and the rest of the movie, really, when they go to Paris, I feel like it starts to un- unravel is maybe a bit harsh, but it, uh, it loosens for me. Yeah. Yes, it loosens. Like, that, like, it feels like everything pre the trip to Paris is this kind of incredible meditation on grief and, like, yeah, exploring. Yeah. And then... And then it just turns into not necessarily, it doesn't fully turn into something else, but it turns into something else. <laughs> like it feels like. Yeah, it's yeah. This, it turns into this like eat, pray, love, mm-hmm. uh, three friends, let's go find ourselves. Yeah. Uh, that I don't really, I don't know. That's, I mean, I'm part of me is all for letting a movie be what it is and letting the artist tell the story they want to tell. Mm-hmm. But the other part of me is like, oh, I feel like you. I don't know that you should have skipped a, a forward a year. Right. I think sitting in those first couple of months was the more interesting part of the movie. Yeah. And even then, I feel like there was a weird misstep when we mark it at six months after the death. And like they're talking about like, oh, we're going to get you a dating profile. Like six yeah. months after his yeah, husband died like yeah. what the, like and yeah. like that kind of took me out of the movie for a moment because i'm like dan you could have written any number of time in this <laughs> like yeah. i don't know why like that's that is so incongruous to like humanity in my opinion <laughs> like yeah. i can't yeah i don't so know So the major spoil uh mm. or twist <clears throat> if it's a twist I, I i don't feel i feel like calling it a twist is maybe a little um unfair but yeah. uh basically mark finds out that his husband was sleeping with somebody else mm-hmm. uh and planning on leaving mark that night uh and and left him a christmas card and, and basically yeah. said i found somebody else and we meet that character so uh part of the tension of the movie or at least from the middle of the movie to the end is how does how does mark deal with that grief uh in congress with the anger he feels toward him at the same time Mm -hmm. and i think that that's interesting i think that that's a great wrinkle i think dealing with that is great i also think keeping that a secret from his friends is interesting storytelling Mm. um but to kind of go back to how I feel like sitting in those first couple of months of grief would be better. That it reminded me of uh, Alexander Payne's The Descendants. Oh, I have not seen it. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. Yep. Well, <laughs> uh, 
it it does this sort of thing better. And, okay. And 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 the grief is confined <clears throat> to uh, a short couple of weeks or maybe a month or two or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you really feel George Clooney dealing with that uh, rather than this odd friendship coming of age yeah. trip to Paris. So let's talk yeah. about that Ferris wheel scene. Yes, yes. But real quick, just first off, the the whole like uh, infidelity thing. Like there's a yeah. moment where he's, I think he he references that they were in an open marriage or that. Yeah. Uh, like, right. yeah. And like, I thought that was interesting, but it was kind of just, it didn't really go anywhere or wasn't really that prominent. But I thought that that was interesting to introduce that and be like, have the, have this like, like this person that he has no knowledge who he is or anything being present and like being someone that's, as he says in the movie, shares his, shares him with him. Um, but it also felt like it was so, uh, underwritten as a mystery that it felt like uh, it kind of felt like it was, if not intentionally, then just unintentionally like leading toward like, oh, it's actually going to be like he has like a long lost nephew that he connected with or something. And then it's going to be all a big misunderstanding. Um, but it wasn't. And I was fine with it. But anyway, yeah. the f- Underwritten is a good way to put it. Because uh, I think the plot, the whole plot is underwritten. Yeah. Whereas the monologues to varying degrees of success are overwritten. Yes, yes. And like that, so yeah, let, let's go ahead and go to Thomas's uh, monologue um, on the Ferris Yeah, for wheel. the climax of the movie, that was my least favorite scene. Yeah. I, and, I was really out on the movie by then. Mm-hmm. In in that scene, if, if, if I missed something or if I'm misinterpreting it, let me know. But like, is there, like, it was him saying, like, was he confessing his love for Mark, or... Yeah, that, I think... Yeah, it felt... I, you know what's funny? That's my read of it as well, mm-hmm. but I so disliked that idea yeah. that I, I kind of, like, discounted it. Yeah, I was because, like, surely that's not what he's saying. Yeah, and it felt so, like, out of nowhere, especially because they had mentioned earlier in the movie that, like, yeah, they dated for a year, 15 years ago, and it didn't work. And it's like, right. yeah, so they're friends. Okay, cool. Like, that's fine. I don't know why right. we would need something like that when we also have this guy going through grief of his husband. Like, it's just so... Yeah. It felt very unnecessary. It kind of felt like the movie was searching for an arc for Thomas and landed on that yeah. rather than... Yeah, so I don't know. In terms of dialogue, it's great, but I think that I think I think there's some work to be done on on his plotting and character stuff. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good that's a good point. It's like yeah. the, the words he was saying were <laughs> impressive, but yeah. yeah, the the choices were odd. I I didn't quite understand. Yeah. I yeah, and then Sophie has the whole thing where it just kind of turns out that she's like, "Oh yeah, I'm just I'm a lush, I'm an alcoholic, I'm gonna stop drinking." And then uh, the denouement is like, "Oh yeah, I'm married to this guy again. Like we we got back together and we're getting married." And it's like, "Yeah, okay, fine. Like yeah. okay, that five minutes ago you're confessing that like you like you what your main problem is and everything, and like it just felt very rushed. Like it's like." uh like showcase like like having this big moment reveal like what the issues are that they have and like how that affects their friendship and then and then like instead of 
instead of having that be earlier in the movie or what have you, uh, we have that like at the climax of the movie. And then the resolution is then like, now that they have, now that they have, um, expressed that or said that out loud, now we skip past where they work through it and now they have worked through it. And it's like, yeah, it just, it just, it, it didn't, didn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. It does a lot of, uh, Telling rather than showing absolutely at the end of the movie. and i think yeah. i'm left disappointed uh mm-hmm. because it starts so well should we do yeah. you want to wrap it up and kind yeah of let's start thought? wrapping it up um I, yeah yeah i ended up rating it three stars um not gonna be <laughs> the this is a hacky joke but uh it is my top movie of 2024 right now um, <laughs> yeah, me too. The number one spot. <laughs> yeah um but yeah i i think that it shows a lot of promise for dan levy as a filmmaker um and it doesn't uh, nothing that i found to be negative about the movie is damning enough to for me not to want to root for him as a filmmaker and watch more of his stuff if he does anything more yeah well said i gave it actually an extra half star only because i love dan levy so Mm -hmm. much uh i thought the premise was great uh and there were moments that i thought were fantastic i do think it's overwritten in Mm -hmm. terms of the dialogue now in some cases that's successful i think everything with mark is fantastic uh but then i also think the friend characters are overwritten to Mm -hmm. a negative degree that said the plot is kind of underwhelming. Uh, there are characters I don't connect with. And ultimately, I left kind of wanting more from Dan Levy, more from Mark as a character, but mm-hmm. not really any more from the movie. That, yeah, well said also. Yeah, um, I'm you. glad that we kind of saw we're on the same page for this. <laughs> for this for sure yeah um yeah. yeah uh so yeah so that's our review of good grief um gonna kind of wind down uh i'm gonna i'm gonna cut you loose mike here in a moment after i give you a platform to do that i'm gonna close out the yeah. episode on my own to, to do a potpourri section since i don't want to go over our allotted time but before that mike uh what other like any any parting thoughts for good grief and if not where can people find you online and everything yeah, nothing nothing more for Good Grief. Currently my movie of the year. Uh, and then in about 12 months, it'll be one of my most forgettable movies of the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, other than that, by the time we talk next, I don't think there will be any new news, any music or anything. Mm-hmm. But maybe in, a, maybe in a couple months. Like I said, just kind of taking uh, time off from mm-hmm. being on social media and being yeah. present. Uh, but time on the obsessive viewer podcast we will be coming back next weekend to record our end of the year episode obviously the favorite episode of the year very looking forward to that i'm so excited it is it is it's it's the best it's i'm so excited for it um and i'm excited to to get to chat with you more throughout the year as well um yeah uh social media links uh letterbox link where can people find you uh at i am mike white everywhere that matters my band is called as good as it gets and all of the band stuff is as good as it gets music Uh, and if you want to help us out listen to our spotify we appreciate it very much absolutely well thank you so much mike and uh and yeah stay tuned for a solo potpourri to wind out the wind down the episode uh yeah until we talk next time mike next week for the year in review episode uh thank you thank you for for your time tonight (laughs) Yeah, man. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Glad to be here.
Okay, and thank you once again to Mike for joining me for that review of Good Grief. Now to wind down the episode, I'm going to do a brief potpourri segment where I'm going to talk about three movies that I watched recently on Criterion Channel. Um, As I said before, I have been getting a lot of uh, use out of my Criterion Channel um, uh, subscription, and I was going to do a Patreon potpourri... um, uh, episode about the Infernal Affairs trilogy, but uh, I decided to do it for Potpourri for this episode. It's an, it's kind of interesting because what I did was basically um, I have a private list on Letterboxd that has all of the like Criterion Channel stuff that I have on my list on Criterion Channel, um, <clears throat> and what I'm going to do. Um, and I also have like a master like watch list and everything. Well, actually just my watch list on Letterboxd. But uh, on weeks, since I'm still going to hopefully be going weekly on Obsessive Viewer, as I've been saying, uh, basically what I'm doing is any week where I have time to watch a movie before recording, like like with days or however long before recording, uh, if I can fit it in my schedule, I would just go on the Letterboxd, do like a random shuffle of the of the playlist or of the list, and pick a movie that pops up. And what the uh, Letterboxd gods decided was that I would uh, watch the Infernal Affairs trilogy. So I had Infernal Affairs pop up, and so I was like, well, i got to watch the other two as well. So I'm going to briefly talk about each one of these movies um, in non-spoiler reviews to wind down or to to uh, to cap off this episode of The Obsessive Viewer. Uh, so the Infernal Affairs trilogy, um, it recently, within the last couple of years, came out on Criterion, uh, uh, on, on physical Criterion disc, um, the entire trilogy. I was very interested in it because The Departed is one of my favorite movies of all time. And of course, Infernal Affairs is, uh, the kind of was the inspiration for The Departed. And I was always curious to see Infernal Affairs and see the entire trilogy. Um, I had heard that The Departed follows the first movie very, very closely. And that, and that's absolutely right. Um, this first movie is really pretty fantastic. Um, it like, it is kind of hilarious to me that, um, I'd seen trivia that, uh, like, I think that, uh, Scorsese had said at some point that he wasn't aware that he was making a remake of, of a movie when he was making The Departed, which that there are so many things about The Departed that are drawn specifically from Infernal Affairs that I kind of have a hard time believing that, but that's neither here nor there. But basically all that's to say is that the first Infernal Affairs movie is basically the entirety of The Departed storyline. So what I found interesting was that I didn't know what to expect from Infernal Affairs 2 or Infernal Affairs 3. So I'm going to go each movie and kind of talk about them. Um, The first one came out in 2002, Infernal Affairs. The premise is a story between a mole in the police department and an undercover cop. Their objectives are the same, to find out who is the mole and who is the cop. So like I said, this follows the plot, like, like this, the plot is followed closely in The Departed, so there wasn't a lot of surprise or anything, but I really, really was just, I found it to be incredibly magnetic and, uh, energetic. And as a crime thriller, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Like I was very impressed by it. I, uh, let me see what I rated it. I think I rated it something like, oh yeah, I rated it four stars, um, on Letterboxd. I really liked it. Um, it, 
didn't go quite as deep uh, into the kind of double lives of the two characters as much as like Scorsese's movie did. Um, But the thing that I found really, really uh, uh, kind of something that I found very interesting about it is that it it kind of focuses on this broader question of what makes someone specifically a good or bad guy. Um, And I just, I really found that to be a pretty compelling part of these two characters' stories um, and in their kind of crisis of conscience that they both experience um, in it. Um, I do still, I mean, I prefer uh, The Departed over it because, like I said, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and, and yeah, but I, like, I can see myself revisiting the Infernal Affairs trilogy as a whole, uh, in the future because I, I found that this first movie very, very compelling. Now the sequels, um, uh, Infernal Affairs 2 came out in 2003. They both came out in 2003. Um, uh, in fact, um, but the premise for Infernal Affairs 2 is in this prequel, Chen Wing, uh, Yan, uh, has just become an undercover cop uh, in the triads while Liu Qin Ming uh, joins the police force. Both the triads and the police find an enemy in a rival crime boss. So this movie was interesting because I was not expecting a prequel. And I wasn't, like, when it became, uh, became when I became aware that it was a prequel, so like the beginning of the movie, um, <laughs> I kind of expected it to be a... Um, like I didn't expect it to have anything to do with the two moles. Like I didn't think Lou or or Jan would be involved in it, or Lau and Mon, uh, and Jan would be involved in it. But they're they they're worked in very well, very organically. And what I found really compelling and interesting about about the the about Infernal Affairs too is that it's it's kind of similar to Infernal Affairs in that it has these two opposing figures, these two opposing characters. Um, but in this movie, it's instead of it being Jan and, uh, and, and Lau, the the two, uh, moles, it's, it's Wong and Sam, Sam being the kind of head, like gangster from the first movie. Um, and Wong being the kind of police captain guy. Um, so like it, it kind of explores their history and their connection, uh, in a, such an interesting way, uh, through backstory and through, um, through like the, the history of it basically. And there's such a, an, uh, a pointed reference, like, like the, the movie is clearly, um, in like clearly draws a ton of influence from the Godfather. Um, and it's, it's really, it it would be almost um uh almost distractingly like uh, uh distractingly so but it's uh it, it's connected like the movie itself is connected to the impending um handover of hong kong um from the U- from the united kingdom now i had to do research on this cuz i don't understand i like i don't i wasn't aware of this but uh, from what I understand, for decades, uh, the UK was kind of in control of Hong Kong, and then, uh, and then they handed it over so that Hong Kong can be their own, you know, sovereign government um, themselves. Um, and this movie is set like in the lead up to that, and I'm not smart enough to detect what 
the subtext of the movie is or what commentary they're uh they're doing but i know that it is very much uh very much there is a commentary done like i'm ignorant of it uh, of the finer details of it but there is clearly like commentary being fed in this movie about hong kong and in the handover of hong kong um and in doing that it makes like even though i'm not sure exactly what the movie's saying with regards to that that social commentary it makes all of the allusions and influence from the godfather makes it feel more important because it is serving a greater commentary it's not like they're making this movie to be like the godfather it's that they are using the godfather as a backdrop for uh for the like uh giving uh for, as a backdrop to explore this power struggle between these warring like gangsters as a as a bigger um uh reflection of like the state of Hong Kong and it being handed over from the UK um so there's there's some really interesting stuff that much much smarter people than I um <laughs> uh probably gained a lot more out of out of it than I did but I I thought that it was a really interesting um entry in in the in the trilogy. And then finally Infernal Affairs 3 which also came out in 20 or 2003 um it is a direct sequel to the first Infernal Affairs and the plot summary is uh, it, it's kind of a dual time, dual narrative, but months after the events of the original film, Ming sus suspects a police superintendent as being a new mole for the triads while years earlier, Jan embarks on his first mission. And this movie, it was really pretty impressive to me because throughout, throughout all of the, throughout the entire trilogy, uh, there is that sense, like I mentioned when I talked about the first Infernal Affairs, um, there is this tension of like crisis of conscience and this sense of identity that the two moles have and who they are, what they're capable of, who they're who they're aligning with. Um, and that comes to a head in Infernal Affairs 3 in a very interesting way because it explores... Uh, the character of Lao, like this crumbling mental state that he has because of the events of the first movie. Um, and in, in relation to uh, this pseudo cat and mouse game between him and this, uh, this shady guy who may be another mole, um, the way that that reaches a conclusion, it caps off the, uh, the entire trilogy in a very memorable way and 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 very um satisfactory way for me because something else that that permeates throughout the the rest of the 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 other two movies the first one and the second one is that it has like these um <clears throat> i guess like chinese proverbs or some kind of proverbs that uh not even proverbs that that's probably wrong but like these philo philosophical like things where it talks about this continuing experience of hell like these uh like the the constant circle of hell that people find themselves in and there's no coming back from it and that that is paid off very well in infernal affairs 3 because it goes into into lao as a character and how he uh reckons with what he's done and what what has happened and and who he is as a person and who he defines himself as, whether it be good guy or bad guy. Um, so I found that to be really engaging and really, really well done in terms of a conclusive, 
conclusion of the of the uh, trilogy as a whole. Um, so all told, those are my thoughts on the Infernal Affairs trilogy. All three are streaming on Criterion Channel. Uh, there's a bunch of extra features on there as well, and it's also out on Criterion Disc as well. Um, really, really liked these three movies. Um, this just like under criminal underworld uh thriller uh story is is just fantastic i really liked it so those are my thoughts on the infernal affairs trilogy and that will do it for episode 410 of the obsessive viewer podcast um once again thank you to mike for joining me for my good grief review and uh you can follow him on letterboxd and social media at i am mike white and uh at his uh bands uh social media which i'll have links to all that in the show notes of this episode next week on the podcast mike is coming back again and tiny is coming back as well because we are going to be doing our 2023 year in review episode it's the big episode of the year very very excited about it um it's just i'm it's it's like the best time of year um the the best thing so uh very excited for that you guys will see that um on january 18th but um patreon uh, we'll have access to that on the 16th, I believe, uh, based on when we're recording it and all of that. So, uh, so check out Patreon once again, uh, just a quick plug for Patreon, a uh, lot of fun stuff on there. I'm going to be doing a lot of fun stuff this year as well. Um, and right now you get access to everything. So check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I'm going to start playing myself out. Uh, yeah. And, and also, um, yeah, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. You can follow me on letterboxd at obsessive viewer, follow Mike at I am Mike white and follow tiny at obsessive tiny. And, uh, and we're also on threads and blue sky and Twitter and Facebook. So find all of that everywhere. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next week. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive feed. For this and more exclusive content, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I, I just, I kind of just enjoyed it more than, um, I enjoyed it more than Scanners. And mostly because of James Wood's, uh, his, his character's, um, arc with his girlfriend. And it's something that I found kind of interesting that the two of them, they like, they get into a little bit of experimentation and pushing, pushing themselves, uh, physically into some kind of, um, like kind of tame really, uh, but still kind of pushing their boundaries of like sadomasochism and, uh, going into some like, some like interesting, like they're, they're, they're crossing thresholds in their, in their physical relationship. I'll say that as weirdly as I can. Thank you for listening to the Obsessive Viewer podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Matt Hurt. If you have feedback, thoughts on our reviews, or just want to connect, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. For more information on all of our shows, including a full archive of our episodes and show notes, plus plenty of written reviews, visit obsessiveviewer.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a follow on social media and subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Also, consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible to help increase our visibility and help grow our community. 
If you want to support the show and help keep us going while getting early access to new episodes as well as a steady stream of exclusive content, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Our theme song is A Little Mad Sometimes by As Good As It Gets. For more of their music, check them out on Spotify and at asgoodasitgetsmusic.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.